when the broad bulk of the society is enjoying an improvement in their material living standard, confidence that that improvement will continue, and even some optimism that their children after them will enjoy the same, that's when the society moves forward on those non-material dimensions. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Ben Friedman is a leading American political economist. Friedman is the William Joseph Mayer Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institute's Panel on Economic Activity, and the editorial board of Encyclopedia Britannica. He's also the author of several books, including The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth and his latest, Religion and the Rise of Capitalism. Professor Friedman, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Perry. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, let's start with this. Let's start at 30,000 feet if we could. Uh, I just I found this book absolutely fascinating and the detail is incredible. But let's start at why you connected religion and the rise of capitalism and why you thought that this was a subject that you wanted to write about. I'm an economist, and I'm interested in where our ideas in economics come from. Uh, Why do I think the way I do? But uh, I think the way I do, of course, because I've learned from all these great economists who've come before me. So that means why, why did they think the way they do? why they think the way they did. Uh, I started to look into this quite some time ago. You mentioned my previous book called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. And there were a couple of chapters in that book in which I started to explore in a limited way uh, that subject. I say limited because that's not what that book was about. But I wanted to look at the intellectual background of it. Where did the ideas come from? And what I found in that earlier book is that I kept stumbling over what appeared to be a very major role for religious thinking. And I didn't understand it. It was a surprise to me. I didn't realize why that should have been so influential, but it seemed to be. And so a few years after I finished that book, then I thought I would turn my attention to uh, this peculiar, I thought, influence of religious thinking on economic thinking. And the more I got into it, the more interesting it seemed to be, in some ways predictable, some ways very surprising to me. And here we are. Well, I don't want to, you know, jump the gun too quickly, but when you say in some ways surprising, uh, can you talk about that? Maybe specifically trace through that whether or not Calvinism and the decline of Calvinism at that time and how that led to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, whether you found that surprising or if that was already known in your world. No, no, no. You, you hit it directly. That was the big surprise. Like, uh, like everybody else, I suppose, who looked at these matters, uh, I thought the authority was Max Weber, the late 19th, early 20th century German sociologist who wrote a very famous book called the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And the main thrust of Weber's argument was that belief in Calvinist predestination was the driving force in the 
origin of capitalism. And the great surprise to me, therefore, as I got into this myself, uh, was to realize that Weber was writing about a different century. He was writing about the 17th century. I was interested in the ideas of people like Adam Smith and uh, David Hume. They uh, were living in the middle of the 18th century. And by that time, not only had Calvinism rather gone out, but it had gone out in a very fiery way. And I concluded that this uh, movement away from Calvinism was what spurred the thinking of uh, Smith and Hume and their other contemporaries. And therefore, having been educated to think like uh, Weber, uh, that uh, if there was any role for religion in all this, it was Calvinism. Uh, I came out more like Weber upside down or Weber on his head, concluded, uh, concluded that what drove the thinking of Smith and Hume was the movement away from belief in things like depravity and predestination. That was a surprise to me. I, I just hadn't understood that that's uh, what it was all about. But I'm now quite convinced that that's so. The... Calvinist movement um, was so uh, pessimistic and dark. I mean, that we're fully evil, we're depraved, uh, and that God really bestows his blessing on people that he and he alone chooses. There's nothing that we can do to gain his favor. Um, and one of the things that interested me, and it always comes down to the timing of things, is that the pushback on Calvinism was so great. And I wonder if, if that pushback hadn't come yet, if Adam Smith's ideas could have been accepted. You know, is it that they only were accepted because he really came along at the right time when the pendulum was swinging the other way? Would you say that that was the driver that all of society was already moving that way and he then gave them a boost to think of it differently? Or do you feel that his thinking was so correct that even if Calvinism wasn't seeing such headwinds uh, or such a force against it, that he could have been successful in his thinking? Let me reply in two ways, if I, if I may. First, I'm an economist. So I'm quite persuaded that Smith's ideas, and we keep talking about Smith, it's really the whole uh, body of thinking developed over a long period of time that we associate I think rightly with Smith, Smith's ideas were sufficiently uh, important and right that surely they could have come along no matter what. So I certainly don't want to make the argument that if uh, Calvin were still as uh, omnipresent in everybody's mind as, uh, as, as he was in the century before Smith, that we would never have come on modern Western economics. I, I don't think that's uh, I think that would be overstating it. Sooner or later, somebody would have thought of that. But the question that always intrigues me is why do people think of things when they did? Even if some idea had to come along at some stage, why is it that uh, uh, Perry thought of it and not Ed, or Ed and not Perry? And why is it that so-and-so thought of it at this period of time instead of that period of time? And I think Part of what enabled Smith and his contemporaries to come up with the line of thinking that flourished into modern Western economics is the movement away from Calvinism at that time. 
But I also don't want to argue that it was the only thing uh, to start. Smith was a very, uh, very smart man. He was he was not an economist, of course. The, there was no such word as economist then. He was a professor of moral philosophy, and he was a very uh, insightful uh, philosopher. So a lot of this is based on his own thought and introspection. And at the same time, they were living in an increasingly commercial society. So they were looking at the world all around them. Anybody who picks up the wealth of nations, just open to any random page, you're likely to find shrewd observations on the world that Smith is looking at all around him. So it wasn't that the religious thinking either was the only uh, force involved. But I concluded that contrary to standard thinking, it was a very important one. And it's one that either people don't talk about at all, or when they talk about, they get it wrong. In the, uh, in the time that we speak about, you know, going back to Smith, 18th century, you know, he's very much a product of the Enlightenment in Europe, uh, Scotland specifically, and he was not a religious person. You know, and you talk about in the book how uh, the distinction between the religion and secular world is really a modern construct. But back then, these two things were much more intertwined. What accounts for the book being successful in his time and lasting, you know, over several centuries? Well, to begin, you're absolutely right. Smith and Hume uh, were not religious uh, individuals. Uh, Smith, as far as we know, was maybe some kind of a deist, like what Americans would associate with Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Smith was very private about his personal religious belief. We don't know very much. And David Hume, for goodness sake, Hume probably was an atheist. He was certainly an agnostic. Uh, Hume, I hope I don't offend anybody here, Hume used to uh, refer to Church of England bishops as agents to superstition. So uh, these were not religiously committed individuals who were self-consciously trying to bring their religious beliefs to bear on their professional uh, work. Uh, my argument is instead that they lived in this world in which religion was more central and more pervasive and more important than anything we know in today's modern uh, Western, especially American society. Uh, and therefore, they were influenced by what was under discussion, what was talked about, what they heard all around them. And here's where the point that you just made turns out to be very important. Uh, intellectual life was very integrated in those days. Take my university, for example. Uh, we have a well-known divinity school at Harvard. It's located about three quarters of a mile away. It's as if somebody said, ah, let's be sure to take all those theologians and stick them someplace where the biologists and physicists and economists can be protected and don't have to talk to them at lunch every day. Well, that's not the way they thought about it in Smith's day when Smith was a professor at Glasgow. Again, he was the professor of moral philosophy. There were only 14 professors on the faculty, and one was Smith, moral philosophy. One was a guy who was the professor of theology. Another was the professor of church history. They were all together right in the same small group. And similarly, when Smith and Hume went off to their favorite dining society, dining and discussion, 
some of the members were very important Church of Scotland officials, uh, so the clergymen. So they were just constantly exposed to ideas coming from theology. And here's where the contentiousness of the debate surrounding the movement away from Calvinism matters, because we don't spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about things that everybody agrees on. You know, you, 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 you and I aren't going to spend the next hour talking about the fact that we all breathe oxygen or, or that the earth, the earth is round. We're just not going to waste time on that. Uh, what we tend to talk about is what everybody argues about. And in their day, uh, the argument over these Calvinist principles uh, was uh, hot and contended. This was something people fought for and things that people died for. So it was right there, and he just couldn't, uh, I think they just couldn't help but be influenced in the same way that people like me in economics today are influenced by what we hear our physicist friends talk about at the lunch table. Or to pick another example, we're right in the middle of this horrible uh, ep epidemic. Uh, you can bet that economists are listening to what the virologists uh, have to say, and I predict that over the next 10 years, we're going to hear a lot of economic models uh, with words like contagion and infection and uh, immunity, things like these are concepts that we're all talking about today. I think that's what was going on then, too. But what Adam Smith establishes in The Wealth of Nations is this idea that self-interest serves everyone. And coming out of the, at the time of Christ uh, and from the time of Christ up through really Calvinism and, and Martin Luther as well, you know, this idea was, you know, to deny yourself, to deny, to push it down. And Calvinism ultimately says, it actually doesn't matter what you do. And so kind of burgeoning out of that, bursting out of that is this idea that self-interest helps everyone. Can you talk about that for our listeners who aren't as familiar with Adam Smith and the importance of that and why he concluded that and what that means for all of us? Well, first of all, I think we want to be very careful about what the Smith proposition is. It's that individuals acting on their self-interest can make other people better off as well. And, and his, this is the important part, under the right conditions, they will. So it's not that uh, my acting on my own self-interest necessarily makes other people better off. It only happens when I do that under the right conditions. And then Smith's great insight uh, was that those conditions were market competition. That's what he uh, contributed. So uh, there were people before Smith who understood that people acting on their self-interest might make others uh, better off. But Smith's great competition was to realize that the condition that made that true was market uh, competition. Now, to relate this back to uh, Calvinism, uh, as you rightly pointed out before, Perry, uh, the Calvin idea was that people are utterly depraved and unable to tell right from wrong, unable to do any good. Now, Calvin was referring to our spiritual lives, but it's not a great stretch for somebody like uh, Smith to uh, secularize that idea and to say, well, of course, if you can't do any good in your 
spiritual life. Maybe you can't uh, do any good in your uh, worldly life as well. And similarly, the Calvin idea, which you got exactly right also, is that there's nothing we can do in order to achieve our spiritual salvation. Uh, it's all been decided not only before we're born, but before the world was even created. And by extension, that might mean that our choices that we make in life, our actions that we take, uh, aren't able to achieve any good in the secular realm either. And so now think about the movement away from that, the rejection of those Calvinist ideas to think, no, 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 we are able to see, uh, see good in front of us. So uh, I love the great metaphor that John Locke had. Locke talked about the candle of the Lord, which every man can, by which he meant every man and every woman, uh, because that was just the vocabulary of the day. Every man can, uh, has access to the candle of the Lord, if he will but take advantage and use it. And so secularizing that idea means, yes, we can see what are uh, beneficial actions to take in the, uh, in the secular realm, including the economic world. And in terms of uh, rejecting predestination, yes, we can take actions which might wind up making other people better off as well. It's a kind of... Uh, it's a, it's a secularization of the idea that human choice, human action, human agency matter. I think that's the story. I'm curious if you'd agree that, you know, because religion has, and faith has been a part of really every human civilization, I think it's safe to say that there's something about our nature. There's something natural about us believing in something uh, uh, beyond ourselves, uh, believing in the, the mysticism, whatever it might be. You know, all religions take different forms. I'm curious if you'd agree that the, 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 this connection that you've made um, sort of proves out that capitalism is as close to the, the, our nature as any economic system could be, which is why um, it has flourished and, and, and has been as successful as it has as an economic system. Well, that's certainly what Smith thought, uh, Ed. Uh, Smith is very explicit. Uh, he says, and he says it very dramatically, he says, the idea of bettering our condition, the way he puts it, uh, comes with us from the, from the womb, stays with us until the grave, and there's scarcely any moment in between the womb and the grave when we're free from that desire to better our condition. And then he goes on from there to make very clear that while you might construe bettering our condition to make all sorts of, uh, mean all sorts of things, he means our material well-being, our economic condition. So he absolutely uh, comes, uh, comes at it in the way you, uh, you suggest. Uh, in, this too is a great change in thinking, incidentally. Uh, before people like Smith and Hume, the idea was that trying to pursue our economic self-interest uh, was a vice. It was uh, the standard noun was vice. The standard adjective for such behavior was vicious. And with Smith, all that just got done away with. The idea that we, as I say, from the womb to the grave, want to better our economic condition. This is just part of human nature, the same way we uh, breathe, the same way we eat. 
and we don't think is morally appropriate that we eat, and we wouldn't think it's morally appropriate that we want to improve our economic condition. That was the view Smith took. And I think this goes along with the rejection of uh, Calvinism in the society in which he was then living, because uh, if you thought that everybody was, uh, to use Calvin's phrase, utterly depraved, well, maybe it is our, it, it's our nature to want to improve our condition, but uh, it's evil to do so. But Smith certainly didn't think that. He stated just the opposite. And after Smith, then in writings that we would identify as economics, again, the word didn't even exist then, uh, just the whole idea that there's anything morally wrong with trying to improve your economic condition just gets eliminated. Would it, would it would you say that it was true that it was elites of the time that had this view that uh, you're pursuing your own self-interest was evil? I mean, because it seems to me, you know, just the nature of of people, you know, if I'm good at producing corn and I'm proficient, so proficient that I'm producing much more corn than I can consume and feed my family with, I'm going to keep pursuing overproduction in hopes of exchanging that corn for something else I need. And to me, that seems just like something human beings wouldn't even need to learn or to be taught how to do that. There's something about capitalism that's just in us. You, you may well be right. And I'm going to plead that I just don't know. The reason I don't know is that the thinking that we are aware of for that from that period is from the people who were able to write their thoughts down and leave them to us. And those were, of course, the people that you're describing as the uh, as, as, as the elites. Um, well, because it strikes me as a luxury to be able to criticize something like that as evil, pursuing your own self-interest, when it seems to me that all people would naturally attempt to do that. And provided you operate within the rules that we've all collectively decided we should operate in, um, you really can't advance your own interests without providing something of value to your neighbor. I suppose you're right. The, the counter argument Ed, would be something along the lines of an innate uh, concept of fairness. We have a lot of evidence from psychologists as well as just looking around the world that if you and I are driving some bargain uh, we have some idea of fairness and there's an, uh, a level at which if you try to improve your welfare over me to a, in a way that I think is unfair, I'm going to react badly against that. We have these uh, um, experiments called the ultimatum game. The standard game would be you and I have to bargain over uh, who gets what out of $100 and you could say, well, uh, if you get to say, say let's, let's say the standard way to play the game is you get to say what the deal is, how much you get and how much I get. And all I get to do is either accept the deal in which we both get what you've said, or I reject the deal in which neither of us get anything. So you could say, oh, well, if you give yourself $99 and I'll give, and leave a dollar for me, I'll of course take it because my choice is to get the dollar or not. But there's a lot of evidence that if you push too far like that, I'll say nothing doing 
and I'll choose the zero over the one because I don't think it's right that you get the 99. So there is something about fairness that's, that's there as well. Incidentally, there's a lot of evidence that this uh, idea of fairness comes in very, very early in children uh, also. Even extremely small children, young children uh, have an idea of fairness too. So uh, I mostly agree with what you say, but I don't, I don't want to push it too far. Well, I want to kind of move ahead to the 20th century, but before I do that, I'm, I'm curious, did you find for you, you, for you and your journey, did you find that this deep dive into religion um, had any impact on your faith one way or the other? No, no. Uh, I was uh, looking at this as a, uh, as a scholarly uh, activity and I, uh, to repeat, I'm an economist. I'm not an, uh, is a historian or an historian of ideas. But if anything, it made me think uh, maybe, I, may, maybe in, in my next life, I should be reborn as a historian of ideas. But it didn't have any impact on how I think about the divine. This is all about how people at a particular time and a particular place coming right down to the present day, incidentally, how they think. There's a lot in the book about how different people think. And what comes through very clearly is that even at the same time, lots of people think differently. So just to, to, for example, I bring, I bring the story down to the present day and it's bearing on our current uh, political economic uh, arguments in the United States. And it's very clear that some people think one way, some people think another way. This correlates very sharply with people's different religious uh, views. Uh, and my view is in a democracy, people are entitled to their religious views, but I didn't take any away anything from mine. You know, one of the things that interested me, you have a quote in the book from William Buckley, the century's most blatant force of satanic utopianism is communism. And communism was so clearly against any religion of any kind. And it seems that the religiosity that exists and existed in the United States created two different wars happening at the same time between uh, capitalism and communism and between people of faith and, well, atheists. Um, so, or um, secular. You know, what I, you know, or secular, yeah. So what I was interested in is how this identity politics starts to play such a role in our economic policy. That is, we have to defeat the communists and communists are about government programs. Therefore, government programs in the United States are bad. I did not know until I read the book that there was such hope when Eisenhower became president that he would undo the New Deal that FDR did, that he that they were looking for Eisenhower to come in and get rid of those government programs. And even though they were successful, they had pulled us, they had helped pull us out of the depression. There was still this desire that, nope, they're about government, government is bad, we want out. And so I just was fascinated by how how much religious thinking played in that. That wasn't a free market issue. That wasn't just, we believe in the free market, the government should stay out of it. It seemed like it included a lot more religious thinking than I had anticipated. Do you see it the same way? 
I do, and in two, I think you're right in two ways. Let's first talk about the uh, underlying religious tenets and then move to your point, which is very important about the role of the communist threat in the middle of the last century. Uh, first of all, there are uh, some strands of Protestant religious thinking, including uh, many that are quite active and uh, well believed in the United States today, having to do with the role of the millennium and the question of whether it makes sense to try to improve the world before the second coming arrives. Now, I'm stating it very simply. We can uh, go into it in much more uh, richness if, if you like. But a longstanding strand of American religious uh, tradition has been to avoid, um, not to avoid, just not to place value on uh, improvements in the world before the second coming arrives to say that it's uh, what matters is to save individual souls, not to improve the world. Now, to be careful here, uh, there's always some tension in that, in that line of thinking, uh, which I don't pretend to understand, because many of the people who held exactly that view turned out to be the great reformers in terms of opposing slavery, opposing uh, drunkenness, being in favor of temperance, and so forth. But nonetheless, in terms of many policies, uh, that's where they are. But your point about communism is very uh, correct. My interpretation of how religious conservatism and economic conservatism came together in the middle of the 20th century in the United States is that you had these two somewhat disparate groups who realized that they were fighting the common enemy. Uh, communism, uh, Marx-Lenin style, was, and to a certain extent, I suppose, remains to wherever it exists, the antithesis of Western religion. But it was and remains the antithesis of free markets, free enterprise capitalism. So you had one group, and I talk about who these individuals were in the book, and you had one group who said, you know, this is a really an existential threat. We had better protect ourselves against this threat of communism because otherwise all our free enterprise capitalism is going to be gone. And you had another group who had exactly the same view because if we lost the battle with world communism, uh, nobody was going to be free to uh, practice uh, Western religion anymore, just as they weren't in the Soviet Union. And I think, uh, especially guided by figures like uh, Bill Buckley, who was uh, not a clergyman, uh, especially active among the clergy was Billy Graham. Uh, I think people understood that they were fighting the same battle and therefore came together. And even though What's interesting to me there is that even though the threat of world communism is now long gone, uh, the union, especially in the United States, of religious conservatives and uh, business conservatives is still with us. It's, it's a kind of like a chemical reaction. The catalyst came, the catalyst went, and even though the catalyst is no longer with us, the result of the catalyst having been there is still with us. Yeah, I was going to ask, 
how much you felt and in which and in what ways are people's economic opinions today driven by their religion, by their faith? It's very clear. And uh, the in the latter part of the book, I look, uh, I, I, I'm not a political scientist, but I looked very carefully at that literature. And fortunately, these people, political scientists do a lot of good work uh, on collecting survey data, asking people what they think about different economic policies. And the correlation between what people think about policies and what their religious affiliation is, is, is very, very sharp. Uh, and similarly, the correlation between people's religion and uh, what they think, not, not of policies, but of, but of underlying uh, questions that surely bear on policies, things like whether, uh, w- whether anybody who works hard can get ahead in, in American in America today. That's not directly a policy, uh, a policy question, but surely the people who think anybody who works hard can get ahead are going to come out with different policy views than people who don't think that. So these, are, these issues are very closely related to people's religious belief, and I think it explains the political orientation of many of our churches today. Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly people in this country that will vote against their own economic self-interest, uh, and I think you point out in the book it's driven by putting putting greater import on social issues or moral issues that they, they that, that they hold dear to them. I think it's that, but I think it's also the religious content of the views themselves. Uh, one of the great puzzles that lots of folks have worried about over the past uh, 20 years or more, economists, but also political scientists and many other people as well, uh, is the fact that we have lots of people who could benefit from economic programs like food stamps and subsidized housing, supplemental income, um, government-provided health insurance, all these things. And uh, actually, I misspoke. It's not just that they could benefit. It's that they do benefit. And yet uh, many of these people systematically vote uh, for um, uh, candidates and party, the Republicans, who would like to reduce or even remove those benefits. Now, here's where my book, I think, um, offers an argument that goes beyond what the political scientists have to say. The political scientists explain this puzzle. They say, well, why is it that all these whites in Mississippi and and Kentucky and these low-income states uh, vote in such enormous uh, majorities for Republicans who want to take away all the benefits that they themselves draw on all the time? The political science view is, well, they don't really oppose those uh, policies. It's just that Uh, we have too few parties. There's no party that's uh, conservative on things like abortion and same-sex marriage, but liberal on economics that, you know, if you're conservative on both uh, issues, you vote Republican. If you're, call it liberal on both uh, policies, you vote Democrat, fine. But 
what if you are the puzzle is the people who would benefit from the policies, but uh, the, these government policies, but who are opposed to things like abortion and same-sex marriage? What about those? Well, the the story of the political scientists is just well, these people have no party to represent them, and so. Uh, they have to choose between their economic preferences and their uh, their uh, social issue preferences. I think that's wrong. And the reason I think it's wrong is precisely that we have uh, survey evidence. The political scientists are right. We In the United States, it's a representative democracy, not a direct democracy. We vote for parties. We vote for candidates. We don't vote on issues except in very st- special circumstances like state-level referenda. Uh, but we do have lots of surveys. So we get to ask people, what is your view on this government policy or that one? Would you like to see a larger government or a smaller government? Would you like to see more regulation or less? Would you like to see higher tax rates on upper-income people or lower tax rates on upper-income people? And again and again and again, right across the uh, spectrum of these uh, policies, uh, people, people's views correlate with their religious affiliation and the standard political science explanation just, just can't, can't explain that. What would the average person, well, let me ask this question like this. You know, I wonder, I wonder if I could get you to opine on something that's just a very basic fundamental question, which is, why is economic growth important? And what is it that the average person doesn't understand about economics that they really should? Ah, well, this uh, question that you posed is exactly the subject of my previous book called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. The question I posed there was why should we in the United States uh, or other high-income countries with our very large, uh, high standard of living, why should we care so much about whether our economy continues to grow? We already live better than, you know, what, uh, 90-odd percent of the rest of the world, and we live better than our grandparents who live better than than their grandparents. So why should we care about that? And the answer I offered in that book, which I'm quite convinced is right, is that Um, economic growth, by which I mean sustained improvement in living standards broadly uh, enjoyed across the population, is the circumstance in which most societies are able to make progress in other dimensions, non-material dimensions of their uh, existence. And I think of things like openness of opportunity is opportunities in society just for the sons and daughters and nieces and nephews of the people already at the top? Or do we want other people to be able to get ahead through hard work also? Um, And I had a lot in that book about the influence of economic growth on tolerance, tolerance with respect to what? Well, as an American, I would immediately think of race relations, but I also looked at religious prejudice, ethnic uh, tensions, uh, generosity to the poor. It's all very well to talk about opportunity, but we all know that there are lots of people who can't 
for no fault of their own, take advantages of the opportunities offered. Even the basics of democracy, things like uh, for us, the nurturing and preservation of the democratic institutions that we have, but elsewhere in the world, the creation of whole new democracies where they don't enjoy that. In every one of those dimensions, uh, what I found in my work for the previous book, The Moral Consequences of Growth, uh, is that when the broad bulk of the society uh, is enjoying an improvement in their material living standard and has some confidence that that uh, improvement will continue and even some optimism that their children after them will enjoy the same, that's when the society moves forward on those non-material dimensions. And by contrast, once people lose a sense of forward progress in material living standard and they don't see that it will resume anytime soon, not only do societies mostly make no further progress on those dimensions, but often there's retreat, retrenchment, and often with very disastrous uh, consequences. So I came away from that exercise thinking that uh, economic growth is very important, uh, but not for the reasons that we normally talk about. You know, our podcast is called The Head and the Heart, and it's because we're fascinated by the tension that exists between our biases and our belief that we're these massive, ra- massively rational beings and how we fool ourselves into that. And I'm really interested in what you were saying about the role that religion has um, in our sense of identity. And uh, as a result of our, us getting our identity from our religion, um, that we're not able to have a really productive conversation in this country about what policies would be best to raise our standard of living. Um, Because if we have a government that's acting, there's a large part of the country that believes that who is acting and not what is being done, but who is acting is necessarily the problem. And so we can't even get to the policy discussion about whether or not a specific action would help people, would be good for humans, would advance our society. We can't get to that because we're stuck on who is acting. I had a friend recently, we were having a discussion about the pandemic and I was fascinated by his take. He said, you know, I'm not bothered if Costco is telling me to wear a mask. I'm not bothered if Walmart is telling me to wear a mask, if I'm going to go into their place, but I will not be told by the government to wear a mask. And I'm just, just wondering how you think economists, I mean, it's not their job to, to really help us think through this, but at the same time, I'm trying to understand whether there's been a, a log jam like this historically that we've broken through and how we've done it. Um, when our identity is so wrapped up in something that we're not able to even have the policy discussion. Well, let me take you back a bit in your, uh, in your question. I, I'm resistant to the idea that uh, religious thinking is one thing and rational thinking is something different. Uh, I don't like to think of religion, uh, religious views as irrational. You know, we all come at our views with sets of preferences and, uh, and in 
exchange with Ed a few minutes ago, I was talking about the idea of fairness. Well, if, uh, if, if, if I have a strong view that fairness matters, is that irrational on my part? Uh, where does it come from? Again, we, it can't come solely from religion. We know that because it, 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 it's found in children too small uh, for that. So we all come with our preferences. Uh, I may like giving a lot of charity. Somebody else may not. Does that make him irrational? Does that make me irrational? I, again, these are all just, these are pre economists call these preferences. And if I do something really stupid, if I say I would like to achieve such and such an objective, and then I, having that objective, then I go off and do something that uh, undermines achieving that objective, then we call that irrational. But as to what my preferences are, or yours, or Ed's, well, you know, uh, who's to say what's rational and, and irrational? So I think we just have to accept that, uh, look, it's a democracy, and people come at their policy views with preferences that are shaped by many influences in their lives. And one of those important influences is uh, religion. America is a much more religious, much more religious country, much more religious population than any of the other high income countries around the world. And that's just a fact of who we are. So uh, I think in a democracy, uh, nobody's going to tell anybody else that his or her religious views are wrong. And I think uh, nobody's going to tell anybody else that it's wrong for his or her preferences on anything, personal behavior, policy matter, to be shaped by religion. Now, what I do think is wrong, and we uh, have this debate all the time, uh, what I do think is wrong is for people to try to impose uh, their uh, religious views on others. That if I say, well, I think such and such a behavior uh, is the right behavior because of my religious views, and therefore, you must do it, whether you have my religious views or, or not. I think that, you know, that rubs me as wrong. So let's say, I'll just pick an example. Let us suppose that on religious grounds, I think I ought to give away 10% of my income every year. Fine, I can do that. But if I say, Perry, because I think of this on religious grounds, you should, you know, you should give away 10% of your income well, we can have that conversation, certainly, but for me then to want to impose that on you, that's where I get off the boat. The book is Religion and the Rise of Capitalism, Ben Friedman. I, I, I will tell you this, um, I don't think you need to come back in your next life as a historian because I found this one to be written honestly by a historian. I understand it. You're an economist, but you um, you impersonate a historian very well. This is a great book and Thank you so much for your time. Well, you're you're kind to say so. If if it, if it looks like something a historian did, that's because that's because I had to work very hard to make that happen. To repeat, I'm an economist, but I I enjoyed talking with you very much, and Ed as well. Thank you very much for having me with you. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much, Professor. Okay, so Professor Friedman, what'd you think, Perry? Uh, yeah, this was a fascinating book, a fascinating conversation. Um, as a person of faith, I'm so interested in what role faith has had 
on our economic policies and what it continues to have. And I think what he does a really great job of in this book is laying out that from the very beginning of the growth and rise or the rise and growth of capitalism, religion has been one of the drivers in at least the thinking around it, not necessarily the conclusions around it, but the thinking around it. what do you think, Ed? Well, there is, you know, look, I've had these conversations or conversations like it with people over the years. And they're, you know, I know people who are very dogmatic about their economic views. It, it sounds very much like uh, a faith system or a belief in a religion when you hear some people talk about. But I, 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 the reason I asked him about economic growth and the importance of economic growth, it, it's something that I've been thinking about a bit, you know, because of what the country is going through right now. You know, just we just got the GDP numbers for last year. And of course, they'll be revised like they always are. But it looks like the economy shrunk uh, last year by three and a half percent. And, you know, the reason it's important, you know, reason GDP is important is because spreading well-being and prosperity as far and wide as possible is really important to the emotional, physical and really just spiritual health of any country, any civilization. And, we, you know, we're going through something right now that's very, very unusual. I mean, it's fair to say unprecedented because we've had this global pandemic. It has had an absolutely devastating impact on jobs, businesses, small businesses in particular, which really do create most of the new jobs come from small and medium-sized businesses that are growing. And this devastation I think it's having really weird repercussions. And, and, and what I'm thinking of specifically is to the degree to which people are sitting at home with nothing to do, going down the rabbit hole on the internet and starting to believe in very strange things. And, and it's evidenced by, you know, what we saw happen on January 6th. This is the head and the heart. I'm Perry Rogers. And I'm Ed Borgato. And you can listen to us on Apple podcasts, Amazon music, podcast one, and Spotify. We're on Amazon Music, right, Casey? We're on Amazon Music? Yes, we are. We are on Amazon Music. So we are continuing. Mm, big time. To, big time, Ed. Big time. <laughs> and, uh, well, uh, thanks for listening. Also, we want to thank Casey Morris once again, who is the world's best producer. We have missed you, Casey. Do you want to say a hello, please? Hey, guys. You know, I'm really happy to be back. Season one was amazing. I'm so excited for season two, man. You guys are you guys are really awesome. So I'm really excited. You're the best, Casey. Uh, and follow our Twitter account if you're on Twitter. We're at head underscore heart underscore pod. 